Chapter Twenty Four of The Art of Travel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in January two thousand eleven. The Art of Travel by Sir Francis Galton. Chapter Twenty Four. Water for Drinking. General Remarks. In most of those countries where traveling is arduous, it is the daily care of an explorer to obtain water, for his own use and for that of his caravan. Should he be traveling in regions that are for the most part arid and rarely visited by showers, he must look for his supplies in ponds made by the drainage of a large extent of country, or in those left here and there along the beds of partly dried up watercourses, or in fountains if he be unsuccessful in his search or when the dry season of the year has advanced and all water has disappeared from the surface of the land there remains no alternative for him but to dig wells where there are marks to show that pools formerly lay or where there are other signs that well water may be obtained short stages i may here remark that it is a good general rule for an explorer of an arid country when he happens to come to water after not less than three hours travelling to stop and encamp by it it is better for him to avail himself of his good fortune and be content with his day's work than to risk the uncertainty of another supply purity of watering places make no litter by the side of watering-places and encourage among your party the mohammedan feeling of respect for preserving the purity of drinking-water old travellers commonly encamp at a distance from the watering-place and fetch the water to their camp signs of the neighbourhood of water the quick intelligence with which experienced travellers discover watering-places is so great that it might almost be mistaken for an instinct intelligence of dogs and cattle dogs are particularly clever in finding water and the fact of a dog looking refreshed and it may be wet has often and often drawn attention to a pond that would otherwise have been overlooked and passed by cattle are very uncertain in their intelligence sometimes oxen go for miles and miles across a country unknown to them straight to a pond of water at other times they are most obtuse dr leichardt the australian traveller was quite astonished at their stupidity in this respect trees and ordinary vegetation are not of much help in directing a traveller to water for they thrive on dew or on occasional rain but it is otherwise when the vegetation is unusually green or luxuriant or when those trees are remarked that are seldom seen to grow except near water in the particular country visited as the blackthorn tree in south africa birds some species of birds as waterfowl parrots and the diamond bird or animals as baboons afford surer promise but the converging flight of birds or the converging fresh tracks of animals is the most satisfactory sign of all it is about nightfall that desert birds usually drink and hence it often happens that the exhausted traveller abandoning all hope as the shades of evening close in has his attention arrested by flights of birds that give him new life and tell him where to go tracks in tropical countries that have rainy and dry seasons it must be recollected that old paths of men or wild animals only mislead they go to dry ponds that were full at the time they were trodden but have since been abandoned on becoming exhausted other signs well water may be sought where the earth is still moist though arid all around or failing that where birds and wild animals have lately been scratching or where gnats hover in swarms to find the spring from the number of birds tracks and other signs travellers are often pretty sure that they are near water but cannot find the spring itself in this case the party should at once be spread out as skirmishers and the dogs cheered on 
to probe for well water. It is unusual when no damp earth can be seen, but where the place appears likely to yield well water, to force an iron ramrod deep into the soil, and, if it brings up any grains that are moist, to dig. Pools of water for many days after there has been rain, water is sure to be found among mountains, however desert may be their appearance, for not only does more wet fall upon them, but the drainage is more perfect. Long after the ravens and stream beds are quite dry, puddles and cupfuls of water will be found here and there, along their courses, in holes and chinks and under great stones, which together form a sufficiency. A sponge tied to the end of a stick will do good service in lapping these up. The sandy beds of watercourses in arid countries frequently contain pools of stagnant water, but the places where these pools are to be found are not necessarily those where they have been found in preceding years. The conditions necessary for the existence of a pool are not alone those of the rocky substratum of the river bed, but more especially the stratifications of mud and clay left after each flooding. For instance, an extensive bed of sand, enclosed between two layers of clay, would remain moist and supply well water during the dry season, but a trivial variation in the force and amount of the current, in different years, might materially affect the place and the character of the deposition of these clay strata. In searching the beds of partly dried up watercourses, the fact must never be forgotten that it is especially in little tributaries, at the point where they fall into the main one, that most water is to be found, and the most insignificant of these should never be overlooked. I presume that the bar, which always accumulates in front of tributaries, and is formed of numerous layers of alluvial deposit, parallel to the bed of the great stream, is very likely to have one, at least, of its layers of an impervious character. If so, the bar would shut in the wet sand of the tributary, like a wall, and prevent it from draining itself dry. When a river-bed has been long followed by a traveller, and a frequent supply of water found along it, in pools or even in wells, say at every five or ten miles, then, should this river-bed appear to lose itself in a plain that is arid, there is no reason why the traveller should be disheartened, for, on travelling further, the water will be sure to be found again, those plains being always green and grassy, where the water in such river-beds entirely disappears. By seashore Fresh water is frequently to be found under the very sands of the seashore, whether it has oozed underground from the upper country, and where it overlies the denser salt water, or else abuts against it if the compactness of the sand resists free percolation. In very many places along the skirt of the great African desert, fresh water is to be found by digging two or three feet. Fountains Fountains in arid lands are as godsends. They are far more numerous and abundant in limestone districts than in any others, owing to the frequent fissures of those rocks. Therefore, whenever limestone crops out in the midst of sand deserts, a careful search should be made for water. In granite and other primary rocks, many but small springs are usually seen. The theory of ordinary fountains is simple enough, and affords help in discovering them. In a few words, it is as follows. All the water that runs from them has originally been supplied by rain, dew, or fog damp, falling on the face of the land and sinking into it. But the subsoil and rocks below are far from being of a uniform character. They are full of layers of every imaginable degree of sponginess. Strata of clay, wholly impenetrable by water, often divide beds of gravel that imbibe it freely. There are also cracks that made continuous channels and dislocations that caused them to end abruptly, and there are rents, filled with various materials, that may either give a free passage or entirely bar the underground course of water. Hence, when water has sunk into the earth, 
it does not by any means soak through it in an equable degree it is an easier matter for it to ooze many miles along a layer of gravel than to penetrate six inches into a layer of clay that may bound the gravel therefore whenever a porous earth or a fissured rock crops out to the light of day there is in ignorance of all other facts some chance of a spring being discovered in the lowest part of the outcrop a favorable condition for the existence of a large and permanent fountain is where a porous stratum spreads over a broad area at a high level and is prolonged by a gradually narrowing course to an outlet at a lower one the broad upper part of the stratum catches plenty of water during the wet season which sinks into the depths as into a reservoir and oozes out in a regular stream at its lower outlet a fissured rock makes a still easier channel for the water as examples of ordinary cases of fountains we will take those represented in the following figures figure one is a mountain figure two is a model made to explain more clearly the conditions represented in figure one it will be observed that there is a raven r in front a line of fault l m n on its left side supposed to be filled with water-tight rock and a valley v figure one on the extreme right the upper part of the mountain is supposed to be much more porous than its base and the plane which divides the porous from the non-porous rock to cut the surface of the mountain along the line a n m b c d e f the highest point of the plane is f and the lowest point a the effect of rain upon the model figure two would be to wet its upper half water would ooze out along the whole of the lines a n and m b c d e f and there would be a small fountain at a and a large one at m but in the actual mountain figure one we should not expect to find the same regularity as in the model the rind of the earth with its vegetation and water impacted surface forms a comparatively impermeable envelope to the mountain not likely to be broken through except at a few places but ravens such as are would be probably denuded of their rind and there we should find a line of minute fountains at the base of the porous rock if there be no actual fountains there would at least be some vegetation that indicated dripping water thus the appearance is well known and often described of a raven utterly bare of verdure above but clothed with vegetation below a sharply defined line whence the moisture proceeds that irrigates all beneath we should also be almost certain of finding a spring breaking forth near m or even near a but in the valley v we should only see a few signs of former moisture along e f such as bunches of vegetation upon the arid cliff or an efflorescence of salts whenever a traveller remarks these signs he should observe the inclination of the strata by which he would learn the position of m where the probability of finding water is the greatest in a very arid country the anatomy of the land is so manifest from the absence of mould that geological indications are peculiarly easy to follow wells digging wells in default of spades water is to be dug for with a sharp pointed stick take it in both hands and holding it upright like a dagger stab and dig it in the ground as in figure one then clear out the loose earth with the hand as in figure two continue thus working with the stick and hand alternately and a hole as deep as the arm is easily made in digging a large hole or well the earth must be loosened in precisely the same manner handed up to the surface and carried off by means of a bucket or bag in default of a shovel and wheelbarrow after digging deeply the sand will often be found just moist no water actually lying in the well but do not therefore be disheartened wait a while and the water will collect after it has once begun to ooze through the sides of the well it will continue to do so much more freely therefore on arriving at night with thirsty cattle at a well of doubtful character 
deepen it at once by torchlight that the water may have time to collect then the cattle may be watered in the early morning and sent to feed before the sun is hot it often happens when digging wells in sandy watercourses that a little water is found and that below it is a stratum of clay now if the digging be continued deeper in hopes of more water the result is often most unfortunate for the clay stratum may prove extremely thin in which case the digging will pierce it then the water that had been seen will drain rapidly and wholly away to the other discomfiture of the traveller Kerkari. i am indebted to correspondence for an account of a method employed in the plains of the sikkim himalaya and in assam where it is called a kerkari also in lower bengal for digging deep holes the natives take a freshly cut bamboo say three inches in diameter they cut it just above one of the knots and then split the wood as far as to the next joint in about a dozen places and point the pieces somewhat the other end of the instrument should be cut slantingly to thrust into the earth and its other end is afterwards worked vertically with both hands the soft soil is thus forced into the hollow of the bamboo and spread out its blades as is intended to be shown in the figure the bamboo is next withdrawn and the plug of earth is shaken out it is then reintroduced and worked up and down as before it is usual to drive a stake in the ground to act as a toothed comb to comb out the plug of earth mr peel writes from assam quote, i have just had four holes dug in the course of ordinary work in hard earth two men dug the holes in one and a half hour they were three feet six inches deep and six inches in diameter i weighed the clay raised at each stroke in four consecutive strokes the weighs were one and a quarter pounds one three quarter pounds one three quarter pounds two pounds another trial gave seven pounds lifted after five or six strokes End quote. according to the above data an assamese workman makes a hole one foot deep and six inches in diameter in six minutes holes six feet deep and six inches wide can be made as i am informed by this contrivance protecting wells the following extract from bishop heber though hardly within the scope of the art of travel is very suggestive Quote, the wells of this country Burtpur, india some of which are very deep are made in a singular manner they build a tower of masonry of the diameter required and twenty or thirty feet high from the surface of the ground this they allow to stand a year or more till its masonry is rendered firm and compact by time then they gradually undermine it and promote its sinking into the sandy soil which it does without difficulty and altogether when level with the surface they raise its walls higher and so go on throwing out the sand and raising the wall till they have reached the water if they adopted our method the soil is so light that it would fall on them before they could possibly raise the wall from the bottom nor without the wall could they sink to any considerable depth a stout square frame of wood scantling bordered like a sentry box and of about the same size and shape but without top or bottom is used in making wells in america the sides of a well in sandy soil are so liable to fall in that travellers often sink a cask or some equivalent into the water when they are encamped for any length of time in its vicinity scanty wells in hot climates should be brushed over when not in actual use to check their evaporation snow water it is impossible for men to sustain life by eating snow or ice instead of drinking water they only aggravate the raging torments of thirst instead of assuaging them and hasten death among dogs the eskimo is the only breed that can subsist on snow as an equivalent for water the arctic animals generally have the same power 
but, as regards mankind, some means of melting snow into water, for the purposes of drinking, is an essential condition of life in the Arctic regions. Without the ingenious Eskimo lamp, which consists of a circle of moss wicks, fed by train oil, and chiefly used for melting snow, the Eskimo could not exist throughout the year in the countries which they now inhabit. That eating large quantities of snow should seriously disturb the animal system is credible enough, when we consider the very large amount of heat that must be abstracted from the stomach in order to melt it. A mouthful of snow at 32 degrees Fahrenheit, that is to say, no colder than is necessary for it to be snow at all, robs as much heat from the stomach as if the mouthful had been of water 143 degrees colder than ice water, if such a fluid may, for the moment, be imagined to exist. For the latent heat of water is 143 degrees Fahrenheit. In other words, it takes the same quantity of heat to convert a mass of snow of 32 degrees into water of 32 degrees as it does to raise the same mass of water from 32 degrees to 141 degrees plus 31 degrees equals 175 degrees Fahrenheit. It takes in practice about as long to melt snow of a low temperature into water as it does to cause that same water to boil. Thus, to raise snow of 5 degrees below zero Fahrenheit to 32 degrees takes 37 degrees of heat, and it requires 143 degrees more, or 180 degrees altogether, to melt it into water. Also it requires 180 degrees to convert water of 32 degrees into water of 212 degrees, in other words, into boiling water. Distilled water it will take six or seven times as long to convert a kettle full of boiling water into steam as it did to make that kettle boil. For the latent heat of steam is 967 degrees Fahrenheit. Therefore, if the water that was put into the kettle was 60 degrees, it would require to be raised through 212 degrees minus 60 degrees equals 152 degrees of temperature in order to make it begin to boil, and it would require a further quantity of heat to the extent of 967 degrees, that is about six and a half times 152 degrees, to boil it all away. Hence, it is of no use to attempt to distill until you have provided abundance of good firewood of a fit size to burn quickly and have built an efficient fireplace on which to set the kettle. Unfortunately, fuel is commonly deficient in those places where there is a lack of fresh water. Rate of distillation. A drop per second is fully equivalent to an imperial pint of water in three hours, or be an imperial gallon in an entire day and night. The simplest way to distill, but a very imperfect one, is to light a fire among stones near a hollow in a rock that is filled or can be filled with salt water. When the stones are red hot, drop them one by one into it. The water will hiss and give out clouds of vapor, some of which may be collected in a cloth and wrung or sucked out of it. In the same way, a pot on the fire may have a cloth stretched over it to catch the steam. Still made with a kettle and gun barrel. There is an account of the crew of the Levant packet, which was wrecked near the Cosmolido Islands, who supplied themselves with fresh water by means of distillation alone, and whose still was contrived with an iron pot and a gun barrel, found on the spot where they were wrecked. They procured on the average sixty bottles or ten gallons of distilled water in each twenty-four hours. Quote, the iron pot was converted into a boiler to contain salt water. A lid was fitted to it out of the root of a tree, leaving a hole of sufficient size to receive the muscle of the gun barrel, which was to set as a steam pipe. The barrel was run through the stump of a tree, hollowed out in the middle, and kept full of cold water for the purpose of condensation, 
and the water so distilled escaped at the nipple of the gun-barrel and was conducted into a bottle placed to receive it. End quote. The accompanying sketch is taken from a model which I made, with a soldier's mess-tin for a boiler and a tin tube in the place of a gun-barrel. The knob represents the breech, and the projection, through which the water is dropping, the nipple. I may remark that there is nothing in the arrangement which would hurt the most highly finished gun-barrel, and that the throw which holds the condensing water may be made with canvas, or even dispensed with altogether. Condensing pipe. In default of other tubes, a reed may be used. One of the long bones of an animal, or of a wading bird, will be an indifferent substitute for a condensing pipe. Still made with earthen pots and a metal basin. A very simple distilling apparatus is used in Bhutan. The sketch will show the principle on which it is constructed. Salt water is placed in a pot set over the fire. Another vessel, but without top or bottom, which, for the convenience of illustration, I have indicated in the sketch by nothing more than a dotted line, is made to stand upon the pot. It serves as a support for a metal basin, S, which is filled with salt water and acts as a condenser. When the pot boils, the steam ascends and condenses itself on the under surface of the basin S, whence it drops down and is collected in a cup C, that is supported by a rude tripod of sticks, T, standing in the inside of the iron pot. Occasional means of quenching thirst. A shower of rain will yield a good supply. The clothes may be stripped off and spread out, and the rainwater sucked from them. Or, when a storm is approaching, a cloth or blanket may be made fast by its four corners, and a quantity of bullets thrown in the middle of it. They will cause the water that it receives to drain to one point and trickle through the cloth into a cup or bucket set below. A reversed umbrella will catch water, but the first drippings from it, or from clothes that have been long unwashed, as from a Macintosh cloak, are intolerably nauseous and very unwholesome. It must be remembered that thirst is greatly relieved by the skin being wetted, and therefore it is well for a man suffering from thirst to strip to the rain. Rainwater is lodged for some days in the huge pitcher-like corollas of many tropical flowers. Seawater Lives of sailors have more than once been saved when turned adrift in a boat, by bathing frequently and keeping their clothes damp with salt water. However, after some days the nauseous taste of the salt water is very perceptible in the saliva, and at last becomes unbearable, such at least was the experience of the surgeon of the wrecked Pandora. Dew-water is abundant near the seashore, and may be collected in the same way as rain-water. The storehouse at Angra Pequeña in southwest Africa in 1850 was entirely supplied by the dew-water deposited on its roof. The Australians, who live near the sea, go among the wet bushes with a great piece of bark, and brush into it the dew-drops from the leaves with a wisp of grass, collecting in this way large quantities of water. Air used a sponge for the same purpose, and appears to have saved his life by its use. Animal fluids are resorted to in emergencies, such as the contents of the paunch of an animal that has been shot. Its taste is like sweetwort. Mr. Darwin writes of people who, catching turtles, drank the water that was found in their pericardia. It was pure and sweet. Blood will stand in the stead of solid food, but it is of no avail in the stead of water, on account of its saline qualities. Vegetable fluids. Many roots exist from which both natives and animals obtain a sufficiency of sap and pulp to take the place of water. The traveller should inquire of the natives, and otherwise acquaint himself with those peculiar to the country that he visits, such as the roots which the eland eats, the bitter watermelon, etc. To purify water that is muddy or putrid. 
With muddy water, the remedy is to filter and to use alum if you have it. With putrid, to boil, to mix with charcoal, or to expose to the sun and air, or what is best, to use all three methods at the same time. When the water is salt or brackish, nothing avails but distillation. To filter muddy water. When, at the watering place, there is little else but a mess of mud and filth, take a good handful of grass or rushes, and tie it roughly together in the form of a cone, six or eight inches long, then dipping the broad end into the puddle, and turning it up. A streamlet of fluid will trickle down the small end. This excellent plan is used by the northern bushmen. At their wells, quantities of these bundles are found lying about. Otherwise, suck water through your handkerchief by putting it over the mouth of your mug, or by throwing it on the gritty mess as it lies in the puddle. For obtaining a copious supply, the most perfect plan, if you have means, is to bore a cask full of auger holes, and put another small one that has had the bottom knocked out inside it, and then to fill the space between the two with grass, moss, etc., Sink the hole in the midst of the pond, the water will run through the auger holes, filter through the moss, and rise in the inner cask clear of weeds and sand. If you have only a single cask, holes may be bored in the lower part of its sides, and alternate layers of sand and grass thrown in, till they cover the holes. Through these layers the water will strain or any coarse bag kept open with hoops made on the spot may be moored into the mud by placing a heavy stone inside it will act on the same principle but less efficiently than the casks sand charcoal sponge and wood are the substances most commonly used in properly constructed filters peat charcoal is excellent charcoal acts not only as a mechanical filter for solid impurities but it has the further advantage of absorbing putrid gases. Snow is also used as a filter in the Arctic regions. Dr. Ray used to lay it on the water until it was considerably higher than its level, and then to suck the water through the snow. Alum Turbid water is also, in some way as yet insufficiently explained, made clear by the Indian plan of putting a piece of alum into it, the alum appears to unite with the mud, and to form a clayey deposit. Independently of the action, it has an astringent effect upon organic matters. It hardens them, and they subside to the bottom of the vessel instead of being diffused in a glary, viscous state throughout the water. No taste of alum remains in the water, unless it has been used in great excess. Three thimblefuls of alum will clarify a bucketful of turbid water. Putrid water should always be purified by boiling it together with charcoal or charred sticks, as low fevers and dysenteries too often are the consequences of drinking it. The mere addition of charcoal largely disinfects it. Bitter herbs, if steeped in putrid water, or even rubbed well about the cup, are said to render it less unwholesome. The Indians plunge hot iron into putrid water. Thirst to relieve. Thirst is a fever of the palate which may be somewhat relieved by other means than drinking fluids. By exciting saliva. The mouth is kept moist and thirst is mitigated by exciting the saliva to flow. This can be done by chewing something, as a leaf, or by keeping in the mouth a bullet or a smooth non-absorbent stone, such as a quartz pebble. By fat or butter. In Australia, Africa and North America, it is a frequent custom to carry a small quantity of fat or butter and to eat a spoonful at a time when the thirst is severe. These act on the irritated membranes of the mouth and throat, just as cold cream upon chapped hands by salt water. People may live long without drinking, if they have means of keeping their skin constantly wet with water, even though it be salt or otherwise undrinkable. 
a traveller may tie a handkerchief wetted with salt water round his neck. By checking evaporation, the Arabs keep their mouths covered with a cloth in order to prevent the sense of thirst caused by the lips being parched. By diet, drink well before starting and make a habit of drinking only at long intervals and then plenty at a time. On giving water to persons nearly dead from thirst, give a little at a time, let them take it in spoonfuls, for the large draughts that their disordered instincts suggest disrange the weakened stomach, they do serious harm and no corresponding good. Keep the whole body wet. Small water vessels. General remarks on carrying water. People drink excessively in hot, dry climates, as the evaporation from the skin is enormous and must be counterbalanced. Under these circumstances, the daily ration of a European is at least two quarts. To make an exploring expedition in such countries efficient, there should be means of carrying at least one gallon of water for each white man, and in unknown lands this quantity should be carried on from every watering place, so long as means can possibly be obtained for carrying it, and should be served out thus. Two quarts on the first day, in addition to whatever private store the man may have chosen to carry for themselves, a quart and a half during the second day, and half a quart on the morning of the third, which will carry them through the day without distress. Besides water vessels sufficient for carrying what I have mentioned, there ought to be others for the purpose of leaving water buried in the ground, as a store for the return of a reconnoitring expedition. Also, each man should be furnished with a small water vessel of some kind or other for his own use, and should be made to take care of it. Fill the water vessels. Quote, Never mind what the natives may tell you concerning the existence of water on the road. Believe nothing, but resolutely determine to fill the girbas, water vessels. End quote. Baker small water vessels. No expedition should start without being fully supplied with these, for no bushman, however ingenious, can make anything so efficient as casks, tin vessels, or mackintosh bags. A tin vessel of the shape shown in the sketch, and large enough to hold a quart, is, I believe, the easiest to carry, the cleanest, and the most durable of small water vessels. The curve in its shape is to allow of its accommodating itself to the back of the man who carries it. The tin loops at its sides are to admit the strap by which it is to be slung, and which passes through the loops underneath the bottom of the vessel, so that the weight may rest directly upon the strap. Lastly, the vessel has a pipette for drinking through, and a larger hole by which it is to be filled, and which at other times is stopped with a cork or wooden plug. When drinking out of the pipette, the cork must be loosened in order to admit air, like a vent hole. Mackintosh bags for wine or water are very convenient to carry, and they will remain watertight for a long period when fairly used. Note, oil and grease are as fatal to Mackintosh as they are to iron rust. But the taste that these vessels impart to their contents is abominable, not only at first, but for a very long time. In two-thirds of them, it is never to be got rid of. Never believe shopkeepers in an India rubber shop, in their assurances to the contrary. They are incompetent to judge right, for their senses seem vitiated by the air they live in. The best shape for a small Macintosh water vessel has yet to be determined. Several alpine men use them, and their most recent patterns may probably best be seen at Carter's, Alpine Outfitter, Oxford Street. A flask of dressed hide, pig, goat, or dog, with a wooden nozzle and a wooden plug to fit into it, is very good. Canvas bags, smeared with grease on the outside, will become nearly waterproof after a short soaking. A strong glass flask may be made out of a soda-water bottle. It should have raw hide shrunk upon it to preserve it from sharp taps likely to make a crack.
calabashes and other gourds coconuts and ostrich eggs are all of them excellent for flasks the bushmen of south africa make great use of ostrich shells as water vessels they have stations at many places in the desert where they bury these shells filled with water corked with grass and occasionally waxed over they thus go without hesitation over wide tracts for their sense of locality is so strong that they never fear to forget the spot in which they have dug their hiding-place when a dutchman or namaka wants to carry a load of ostrich eggs to or from the watering-place or when he robs a nest he takes off his trousers ties up the ankles puts the eggs in the legs and carries off his load slung round his neck nay i have seen a half-civilized hottentot carry water in his leather breeches tied up and slung in the way i have just described but without the intervention of ostrich eggs the water squirted through the seams but plenty remained after he had carried it to its destination which was a couple of miles from the watering-place in an emergency water flasks can be improvised from the raw or dry skin of animals which should be greased down the back or from the paunch the heart bag pericardium the intestines or the bladder these should have a wooden skewer running in and out along one side of their mouths by which they can be carried and a lashing under the skewer to make all tight the bushmen do this the water oozes through the membrane and by its evaporation the contents are kept very cool another plan is after having tied a length of intestine at both ends to roll it up in a handkerchief and wear it as a belt round the waist the fault of these membranous bags besides their disgusting character and want of strength is that they become putrid after a few days use vessels for cooling water may be made that shall also act efficiently as flasks porous earthen jars are too brittle for long use and their pores choke up if slimy water be put inside them but the arabs use a porous leather flask called semsemia which is hung on the shady side of the camel and by evaporation keeps the water deliciously cool it is a rather wasteful way of carrying water canvas bags are equally effective open buckets for carrying water for short distances or for storing it in camp may be made of the bark of a tree either taken off in an entire cylinder and having a bottom fitted on or else of a notch or excrescence that has been cut off the outside of a tree and its woody interior scooped out or of birth bark sewed or packed at the corners and having its seams coated with the gum or resin of the pine tree baskets with oiled cloth inside make efficient water vessels they are in use in france as firemen's buckets water-tight pots are made on the snake river by winding long touch roots in a spiral manner and lashing the coils to one another such as is done in making a beehive earthenware jars are excellent when they can be obtained to prevent splashing when carrying water in buckets put a wreath of grass or something else that will float on the water to prevent it from splashing and also make a hoop inside which the porter may walk while its laden hands rest on its rim the hoop keeps his hands wide from his body and prevents the buckets from knocking against his legs mending leather water vessels if a water vessel becomes leaky the whole should be caulked by stuffing a rag a wedge of wood a tuft of grass or anything else into it as shown in the upper figure and also in the left side of the lower one and then greasing or waxing it over a larger end must be seized upon the lips of the wound pinched up a thorn or other spike run through the lips and lastly a piece of twine lashed firmly round underneath the thorn the thorn keeps the string from slipping off when there is an opportunity the bag must be patched as is also shown in the figure repairing a battered metal flask fill it with dry seed such as peas or mustard seed 
then pour in water and put a stopper into it. After a period varying from one to three or four hours, according to the nature of the seeds, they will begin to swell and to force the sides of the flask outwards into their original shape. The swelling proceeds rather rapidly after it has once commenced, so the operation requires watching, lest it should be overdone and the flask should burst. Corks and Stoppers Thrust a cork tightly into the mouth of the flask, cut a hole through the cork and plug the hole, which will henceforth form the outlet of the flask, with a stopper of wood, bone or other hard substance. Thread, wound round a slightly conical plug that has been sufficiently notched to retain in its place, makes it nearly watertight as a stopper. It is of less importance that the stopper should fit closely, if the flask be so slung that its mouth shall be always uppermost. A very imperfect cork will then be sufficient to check evaporation and splashing, and to prevent the loss of more than a few drops from occasional upsets. Drinking when riding or walking It is an awkward matter to drink when jolting on wheels, on horseback or on foot. I adopted the plan of carrying a piece of small India rubber tubing, six or eight inches long, and when I wished to drink, I removed the stopper and inserted the tube, just as an insect might let down its proboscis, and sucked the contents. Sir S. Baker says of the people of Unyoro, quote, During a journey, a pretty, bottle-shaped, long-necked gourd is carried with a store of plantain cider, the mouth of the bottle is stopped with a bundle of the white rush shreds, through which a reed is inserted that reaches to the bottom. Thus, the drink can be sucked up during the march, without the necessity of halting, nor is it possible to spill it by the movement of walking. End quote. Kegs and tanks Kegs for pack saddles Small barrels flattened equally on both sides, so that their tops and bottoms shall be of an oval and not a circular shape, are the most convenient vessels, notwithstanding their weight, for carrying water and pack saddles across a broken country. They are exceedingly strong and require no particular attention, while bags of leather or mackintosh suffer from thorns, and natives secretly prick them during the march, that they may suck a draught of water. These kegs should not exceed twenty-two inches in length, ten in extreme breadth, and seven in extreme width. A cask of these measurements would hold about forty pounds weight of water, and its own weight might be fifteen pounds. As the water is expended, it is easy to replace the diminished weight by putting on a bag from one of the other packs. Before starting away into the bush, these kegs should be satisfactorily fitted and adjusted to the pack saddle that is intended to carry them, in such a way that they may be packed on to it with the least possible trouble. A couple of leather or iron loops fixed to each keg, and made to catch on to the hooks which are let flush into the sides of the pack saddle, will effect this. The sketch represents a section of the pack saddle at the place where one of the hooks is situated on either side, but the front of the kegs themselves and not their section is given. Above and between the kegs lies a bag, and a strap passing from the near side of the saddle goes over the whole burden and is buckled to a similar short strap on the other side. It is of importance that the bunghole should be placed even nearer to the rim than where it is drawn, for it is necessary that it should be convenient to pour out of and to pour into, and that it should be placed on the highest part of the keg, both when on the beast's back and also when it stands on the ground, lest water should leak and be lost. According to the above plan, when water is ladled into it, the rim keeps it from spilling, and in pouring out water, the run acts as a spout. In making the bunghole, a metal plate with a screw hole in it is firmly fixed in the face of the cask. Into this, a wooden stopper bound with iron is made to screw. Natives would probably steal a metal one. 
the stopper has a small head and a deeply cut neck by which it is tied to the cask and its body has a large hole bored in it which admits of a stick being put through to prise it round if it should become jammed a spigot to screw into the bunghole on arriving at camp might be really useful but if used a gimlet hole must be bored in the cask to act as an air vent a large tundish is very convenient and a spare plug might be taken but a traveller with a little painstaking could soon cut a plug with his own knife sufficiently well made to allow of its being firmly screwed in and of retaining the water if it had a bit of rag wrapped around it a piece of rag rolled tightly will suffice to plug a hole siphons a flexible tube of some kind whether of india rubber gutta percha or still better of mackintosh strained over rings would be very valuable as a siphon both for filling large kegs out of buckets and for emptying them again vulcanized india rubber becomes rotten after short use and gutta percha will stand no extremes of temperature tanks for wagons there still remain many large districts in asia africa and australia which may be explored in wagons but so far as i am aware no particular pattern of a water tank suitable for carriage on wheels has yet been adopted by travellers i believe kegs are generally used but they are far too heavy for the requirements of a wagon probably the tins used for sending milk by cart and railway to towns would be very serviceable for carrying water and expeditions they are invariably made of the same shape and only of few different sizes therefore experience must have shown that their pattern is better than any other yet devised their mouths can be padlocked which is an important matter mackintosh bags i would also recommend a trial of square bags of strong mackintosh say eighteen inches deep and ten inches square in which case they would hold sixty pounds of water fitting into square compartments in large panniers like those in a bottle basket i have made some experiments upon this arrangement the basket work gives protection against blows and a jolting together of packages and it yields without harm to a strain and the bags yield also moreover water is less churned in half-empty bags than in half-empty barrels no unusual strength of materials would be required in making these bags their mouths should be funnel-shaped and corked at the neck of the funnel the funnels should be wide at their mouths for convenience in filling them and a string to secure the cork should be tied round the neck of the funnel the bags should have loops on their sides through which a strap passing underneath might run in order to give a good hold for lifting them up they could easily be filled as they lay in their compartments and would only require to be lifted out in order to empty them there is therefore no objection to their holding as much as sixty pounds weight of water an india rubber tube as a siphon and with a common spigot at the end of it would be particularly useful a pannier not much exceeding thirty inches long by twenty broad and eighteen deep would hold six of these bags or three hundred sixty pounds weight of water in all and two such panniers would be ample for exploring purposes i had a pannier and two bags made for a trial which were quite satisfactory and i found that the weight of the panniers and bags together was at the rate of six pounds for each compartment therefore the weight of these water vessels is not more than ten per cent of that of the water which they carry it might be well to vary the contents of some of the compartments putting for instance two or even three small bags into one and tin cases into a few of the others instead of the large bags these panniers with the bags inflated and connected together by a stage would form an excellent and powerful raft if secured within a wagon about to cross a deep river they would have enough power in all ordinary cases to cause it to float and not to sink to the bottom i trust some explorer will try this plan i may add that the mackintosh water bags cost me about one pound each
raw hide bags. Captain Sturt, when he explored in Australia, took a tank in his cart, which burst, and, besides that, he carried casks of water. By these he was enabled to face a desert country with a degree of success to which no traveller before had ever attained. For instance, when returning homewards, the water was found to be drying up on all sides of him. He was encamped by a pool where he was safe, whence the next stage was 118 miles, or four days' journey, but it was a matter of considerable doubt whether there remained any water at the end of the stage. It was absolutely necessary to reconnoitre, and in order to do so, he had first to provide the messenger with the means of returning, should the watering-place be found dry. He killed a bullock, skinned it, and filled the skin with water, which held 150 gallons. Sent it by an X-ray, 30 miles, which orders to bury it and to return. Shortly after, he dispatched a light one-horse cart, carrying thirty-six gallons of water. The horse and man were to drink at the hide, and then to go on. Thus they had thirty-six gallons to supply them for a journey of one hundred seventy-six miles, or six days, at thirty miles a day at the close of which they would return to the ox-hide, sleeping, in fact, five nights on thirty-six gallons of water. This a hardy, well-driven horse could do, even in the hottest climate. To raise water from wells for cattle. By hand. Let one man stand in the water, or just above it, another five feet higher, and again one another higher still, if the depth of the well requires it. Then let the lowermost man dip a bucket in the water, and pass it from hand to hand upward. The top man pours the water into a trough, out of which the cattle drink. This trough may be simply a ditch scratched in the ground. A piece of canvas should be thrown over it, if the soil be sandy, to keep the water from being lost before the cattle have time to drink it. Thus Eyre speaks of watering his horse, out of his black servant's duck-frock. Light gutta-percha buckets are very useful in temperate climates, and so are baskets, with oilcloth inside them. The drove of cattle should be brought up to sixty yards from the watering-place. Then three or four should be driven out. They will run at once to the water. After they have drunk, drive them to one side, and let another three or four take their place, and so on, keeping the two droves quite distinct, those that have drunk, and those that are waiting to drink. They will drink at the rate of one per minute. Sheep and goats drink very much faster. Never let the cattle go in a rush to the well, else they will stamp it in. Most of them get no water, and they will all do a great deal of damage. By Horsepower It does not fall within the scope of this book to describe water-wheels worked by cattle, or elaborate mechanisms of any kind. I therefore only mention under this head that the Tartars sometimes drew water from the wells of 150 feet deep and upwards, by a rider harnessing the bucket-rope to his horse, and galloping him off to a mark that tells the proper distance. The ropes are of twisted hair, and are made to run over a smoothed stone or a log of wood. A pole and bucket is a very convenient way of raising water from four to twelve feet. The bucket may be made of canvas, basket-work, leather, wood, or almost any other material. Leakage, though considerable, is of little consequence, because the action of the apparatus is so quick that there is no time for much water to be lost. This contrivance is used over almost the whole globe, less in England than elsewhere. It is very common where long poles can easily be obtained, as in fir forests. Pump an excellent and very simple pump is used by the Arabs in Algeria. A piece of leather or waxed canvas is stretched round one or more hoops. It forms a hollow cylinder that admits of being shut flat like an accordion. The top and bottom of the cylinder are secured round the edges of two discs of wood. Holes are bored in these discs, and leather valves are fitted to them. The lower disc is nailed to the bottom of a tub 
the hole in it corresponds with the feed pipe and the valve that covers the hole opens upwards the upper disc is attached to the pump handle the valves that cover the holes in this disc open upwards also when the leather pump barrel is pressed flat water flows through the upper valves into the barrel around it when it is pulled out water is sucked up through the feed pipe and an equal quantity is displaced from the barrel this flows out into the trough a bag would do as well as a tub to hold the water which surrounds the pump barrel but without the water which it is the object of either the one or the other to contain the pump barrel must be air-proof as well as waterproof the action of this pump is marvelously perfect it attracted much attention in the french exhibition of eighteen fifty five chapter twenty four